so we have now come to the culminating passage of this incredibly loaded set of scriptures that we've been on, uh, we've been wrestling with really since January. Uh, we, it, this is the moment really that will set us up for chapter four, which honestly, chapter four is a continuation of the culmination. So it kind of was, it's all it kind of was leading to here and then we're gonna kind of have to let it carry us now for the next couple of weeks. So the plan today is to take a look at some key elements to understand about God's relationship with Israel prior to Jesus, and then helping understand kind of what it was that Israel was looking for when they were looking for the Messiah in anticipation of the Messiah. And we're going to look at the many ways sort of that humans have struggled to play our role in God's big plan. But how God, even in the midst of all that, ultimately still does what he always says that he would do. Now, remember, we left off last week uh, with Paul giving us this list, this just enormous list of Old Testament passages that tell us why nobody is righteous. Nobody on their own is good. He says we all have sinned. And he tells us why, because all have sinned, right? And he tells us how the, the law is actually evidence against us. And it's all the evidence that is needed to prove our guilt. But finally here, as we get to this passage, we finally get to some incredible hope, which you're probably like, after 11 weeks of despair, we finally reach something hopeful. Now, upon first glance, when you read this passage, it's going to appear, and, it, and most people view it this way, it really appears that the passage we're about to read is simply about the way that God deals with the problem of sin. And to an extent, the passage is about that, but Paul actually does a much more thorough treatment of sin a few chapters later in Romans, where he really handles that more so later. The bigger point of this passage, kind of where we, we start today all the way to where we're going to land at the end of chapter four, is about how God has fulfilled his covenant. There's a word that Paul uses that's translated uh, in, in our translation as righteousness, it could also be translated as God's covenant justice. It's God doing what God said that he was going to do. But he didn't do it the way that the Jews thought that he was going to do it. He didn't do it through politics. He didn't do it through the law. And ultimately, he didn't just do it for the Jews, which is what they had thought that it would be. He did it for everyone. So today we're going to read Romans 3, 21 through 26. And, uh, let me s and again, Romans, 21, or Romans, 3, 21 through, uh, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is actually a very culminating moment. Uh, it's the culmination of everything that Paul had been saying that our unrighteousness exists, it's very obvious, we're very, we are all unrighteous, but our unrighteousness, though there is kind of a power that lies over us, that sin we're kind of under, that power is not more powerful than God's righteousness. Our unfaithfulness is not more powerful than God's faithfulness. It's not powerful enough to stop what God is doing. It's, so it's a culmination of all that, which we've been learning about, but it's also a setup for where he's about to go and what he's about to say hereafter as he builds ultimately to the last thing that he's going to say uh, as we end this first movement of thought. Remember, Romans is built in four movements. Uh, one through four is the first movement. And one through four ends 
by saying that Christ was actually delivered for our trespasses, right? So because of what we did, he was delivered over and he was crucified, but it said that he was raised for our justification. And that's where we're going to land on Easter. It's going to be a great day again to invite your friends, so please do that. But let's read this passage together and just sort of see what Paul is trying to say, starting in verse 21. But now, but now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received By faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So on what we call Good Friday. This year it falls at the same time as Good Friday, right? This year, Good Friday is April 19th. Uh, that will also begin what is known as Passover. The Last Supper in which Jesus washed the feet of the disciples uh, and they all took communion together, that actually was a Passover meal. They were coming together to celebrate Passover for that meal. That's what Jesus said. He said, I've longed for the moment when I can spend this Passover with you. We can share this Passover meal together. Now, Passover is a Jewish celebration to commemorate that fateful day in Egypt where all of the firstborns in every house were killed. And only the families who first sacrificed a lamb and then put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost were spared of the tragedy. It's found in Exodus. And it's actually fascinating um, because the way that the Bible says that the Jews were to actually wipe that blood on their doorpost, not over the door specifically, but on the post that surrounds the door, What many rabbis said that that would have looked like is actually would be the equivalent of what the Hebrew, the modern Hebrew letter letter het looks like written in blood over these homes. Now, in this day, uh, we are still in ancient Hebrew most likely, so it was still a pictorial language, but this is what it would become. So the the letter het would have been how you would have done this if you were painting your doorpost in blood. Now, het means life. So even down to the strokes that were used to put the blood on their door, and even though they probably had no idea that they were doing this, they were declaring that there is life in this home because of the blood of the lamb. So the death of the firstborns, it was the tenth and final plague that ultimately led Pharaoh to letting the Israelites go free from the oppression that the, uh, the Egyptians had held them under as they'd been enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. And it was only after Pharaoh absolutely refused to let the people of Israel go 
that it came to this. So in celebration of Passover, Jews do something called the Seder. Now the Seder, it means the order. It's the order in, it's in which they have a meal that walks through what took place those many years ago when God rescued them from the hand of the enemy. And he did it in a way, as we all know, that it made it very clear, God is on your side, Israel, and God is powerful enough. These are my people and I am their God. And during the Seder every year, everything happens in the exact same order. They always do it identical. And there were four different cups that you would drink during the Seder throughout the meal. They're known as the four cups of Passover. Now the symbolism behind these four cups comes from Exodus 6, 6 and 7. Now this is very important. And we're laying some front groundwork today for where we're going to go until Easter. Okay? See, Exodus 6, 6 and 7 is God making a promise to Moses that he will remember his covenant with Abraham. So God makes a covenant to Abraham. When's that going to come to pass? We're all in bondage. Now God says, Moses, I'm going to fulfill the covenant I made with Abraham. Now we're going to get more into that in the next couple of weeks. But the passage we're looking at today, it really, it's going to flow from chapter 3 into chapter 4, and you're going to see that chapter 4 is all about Abraham and all about that promise. But in Exodus 6, right, Israel is still in slavery, even though God had promised he would give them the land of Canaan, that promise originally was given to Abraham. They're in slavery. But this is what he says to Moses. He says, he says, Moses, it is time to leave Egypt. And this is what it says. It says, say this to the people of Israel. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So in this passage is what the, the sages at the time and later the rabbis called the four I wills. The four cups of Passover represented each of these four statements. First, I will bring you out. That is the cup of sanctification, the cup of salvation. I will bring you out from your broken situation. Second, I will deliver you. That is the cup of deliverance. Third, I will redeem you, the cup of redemption. And fourth, I will take you to be my people, which is what they call the cup of praise. So you begin the Seder meal with the cup of sanctification. I will rescue you. I will not leave you as you are. I will not leave you in this broken situation. I will not leave you in the place that you are, in the bondage to slavery in Egypt. I will physically remove you from your broken circumstance. I will be the one who saves you. Because honestly, when you're, when you're slaves and you're enslaved for 430 years, and you have 430 years of oppression, it kind of becomes clear we probably can't save ourselves. Can we? We haven't been able to do it yet. So obviously you're seeing a lot of parallels, hopefully, to the gospel here. We see a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do. We see a foreshadowing of what Jesus will do in much of the Jewish literature. The second cup is called the cup of deliverance. Or sometimes it's actually called the cup of plagues 
or the cup of judgment. And I'll try to explain kind of why, to me, that makes sense. Um, a lot of people actually view Passover as uh, the, the account of Passover as kind of a bit of a prequel image that you get for judgment. See, you get this image of death knocking at the door, and only the homes who were covered by the blood of the Lamb were spared. But the fact that it happened actually was what ultimately led to the salvation of Israel. It was what led to the rescuing of Israel. It was what led to them being set free. It was what led to the promise actually coming to pass. Now, typically when Christians kind of adapt this, we call it the cup of deliverance. And because the idea is that after God gets you out of Egypt, right, we all know that he did that, he knows, okay, you're out of Egypt now, but you were in Egypt for 430 years. You learned a lot of stuff in 430 years that's not so good. You learned that you were taught that your value is only in what you can produce and how many bricks you make. Obviously, your self-esteem is going to have problems at that point. You believe you're not worth a lot. You probably have 430 years worth of bitterness toward the people who have held you down for so long, possibly bitterness toward the God who you believe let it happen for such a long time. And so yes, now God has removed Israel from Egypt, but now he has to get Egypt out of Israel. Or you could say it like this in your life. God, you did something amazing for me. You did whatever you needed to do, which we know that he did, to get me out of the situation that I'm in. Now do in me whatever you need to do get, to get out of me what needs to get out so that I can be who I'm supposed to be. Again, it's all back to that image of pruning. It's saying to God, God, I don't want to be like Egypt. I don't want to be one of the ones that gets cut off. I want to be pruned so that I can actually be who I'm supposed to be. So the second cup is the one that is partaken during the meal. And to me, it makes sense that they would do that because I feel like a lot of our lives are kind of that process of pruning, that process of like, hey, uh, God making us into the people that he intended us to be. But I would actually venture to say that we'd be more effective if it was the third cup that we spent the most of our time in. But the reality is that God has a dream for your life. And the reason he has to do the cup of deliverance before he can do the cup of redemption is because you are the only person who can get in the way of what God is trying to do in your life. That's it. You're the only one. But the third cup is the one that is most theologically significant for Christians. And that's the cup of redemption. The cup of redemption was drank after the meal in the Seder. Now, to redeem something means to put it back to what it was. It's God putting us back to the state that he created us and intended us to be. So I have this book right here. And if, if this book is right here, it's sitting here, and all of a sudden I were to knock it off the shelf like that, Book's not on the shelf anymore, right? Now, I could go here and I could pick up the book and I could still use the book and I could even read the book. I could brush it off. I could say, oh, we bent that page. I'll straighten it out, fix it. That's good. God can still use it. But if God actually redeems us, in order for me to actually redeem the book, I have to actually put the book back to where it was. That's redemption. A book that still functions over here is not bad, but it is not redeemed. Only redemption means to put it back to where it originally was placed. Now, we all know that God created the world with a very specific order and a very specific plan for what he wanted us to be, and mankind broke that, right? We all know that. 
Uh, it's essential um, with, the, with the entire argument thus far has been that in Romans. It's been, hey, you know what? You, you have glory. God gives you glory. But what do you do? You exchange glory for something that's not as glorious. You exchange it for sin. You exchange it for godlessness. You exchange it for injustice. Things that have gotten us off track. But God promised to redeem that. He said, you know what? I will put this back. That was the very first covenant that he made when man fell. He said, I'm going to put it back. I'm going to bring it back to what I created it to be. Now, the cup of redemption. Again, it is the cup you drink after you have eaten. So at, um, when Jesus at the Last Supper He's with his disciples, and we know for a fact, it's very clear, I am having a Passover meal. They are having a Seder as they are having this Passover meal. And if you look very closely at the Bible, it says very, very closely that after they had eaten, Jesus takes the cup. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, after supper, Jesus took the cup. You get it in Matthew the same way. You get it in Luke 22, 20. He says, they took the cup after, the, he took the cup after he had eaten. So if they'd already eaten the meal and Jesus picks up the cup, they would now be partaking in what? The third cup. The cup of redemption. Which, how ironic is this? The cup of redemption actually was symbolism in Jewish culture, it still is, for the blood of the lamb. That caused the death to pass over the people of Israel. And before Jesus drinks of this cup, he says something different than maybe they were expecting him to say. He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup of redemption. The cup of God bringing the world back to what he created it to be is now being called the New Covenant. Now, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31, 31. Find it here. Follow along on the screen with me. We're going to read through 34. Behold, the days are coming. They're not here yet. They're coming. This is the Old Testament. Declares the Lord... When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So they made a covenant. It was actually a ketubah. Uh, we talked about that earlier. It's like a marriage agreement. Obviously, Israel did not Fulfill it. God says, okay, you broke it, but I'm going to make a new one. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It won't be on tablets anymore. Now it's going to be in their hearts. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And look at this. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord. You need to get saved. You need to know the Lord. No, no longer, for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. 
They shall all know me from the least to the greatest. I will forgive them. I will remember their sin no more. Now remember this. Even though God says I was their husband and they broke my heart, I'm going to return to them. I'm going to put them back into that marriage relationship that we had. So Jesus here in this moment, he's telling his followers that this cup represents his blood and this blood is how you will be redeemed. This is how we're going to put you back to what God said all along that he was going to do. See, Israel was expecting it to come through a king. They were expecting a political ruler who would overthrow Caesar and fight to make things right, all the things that were done wrong to them. And instead, God chooses to do it through a man who had never held a political office, He had never held a military post who says things like, if if somebody hits you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, right? Don't avenge, don't take vengeance. Love your enemies. He didn't even defend himself when they came for him, but he's the only one who was actually truly faithful to the covenant. He's the only one that was actually faithful to fulfill the law and be faithful to what God desired. Now, with that, I want us to look at this passage again in Romans. I'm going to read verse 21 through 24, and uh, just, just for this passage, I'm going to read it out of Eugene Peterson's translation, The Message. I don't do that very often, but sometimes it helps to get a more clear understanding uh, from somebody who did the hard work of making this, trying to sort all this out, and I like what he says here. It seems appropriate. This is the same passage we read earlier, uh, up through 24. But in our time, right now, in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets all witnessed to all those years has happened. Look at this. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believe in him. For there is no difference between us and them in this. Since we've compiled this law and sorry record as sinners, both us and them, and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us. God did it for us. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself, a peer gift. He got us out of the mess that we're in and restored us to what he always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. I love the way that it begins by saying, but in our time. The ESV says, but now, but now. I said it like 10 times when I was reading it because you have to get this in your head. It is literally saying now today. It's not like, hey, this is what I've argued and and the argument culminates here by saying this. Here's my conclusion. He's literally saying today. What, What God said he was going to do What he said all along that he was going to do, all these writers are familiar with it. He has done it, and we are living in it today. But what I want you to see here through this interpretation is not only that God has done through Jesus Christ what he always promised that he would do, but also that God actually has a dream for your life. God actually has a vision for your life, a plan for your life. There's something that God has for you, and it's something that he's always wanted for you. See, we can run from our call, but we cannot remove our call. And what this is saying is not 
only that God is going to put us in right standing with him because he's done that. We need, to we need to understand that part. He's done that. But also that he's empowered us right now to be the people that we're supposed to be. The fourth cup of Passover is called the cup of praise. It's known as the Hallel. Hallel literally means I can't believe that it's this good. Can't believe it. And that's the point of the four cups. It's that God wants to take you, he wants to save you, but he wants to bring you from salvation all the way to this place in which your life is fulfilled. You're who you're supposed to be. He wants to bring you from salvation to fulfillment, where you're living the fullest life imaginable, all the way to you're excited to get out of bed in the morning. You're not dreading it because of the mission you get to be a part of every single day. You're excited to go to work. Most of us, we, we live our entire Christian lives sort of believing that God wants something from us. But in reality, God wants something for us. He wants something amazing for us. And when you look into like a reflection, if you look in a mirror, you look in a reflection of your life and all that it's held and all the things that you've done and you get even a glimpse of what you deserve, to come to that conclusion that, Je that through Jesus, God has just flushed all that down the toilet and he says, no, I'm not going to do that. It's then that you can drink from that fourth cup and be like, man, I can't believe that it's this good. I can't believe it. The fourth I will statement says this. It says, I will take you to be my people. Again, for the Jewish people. I know we've kind of been building to this, so hopefully, for those of you who have been here, you're, you've been following this, but literally this was a proposal. It was God saying to sinful Israel, I am choosing that in the midst of all that is wrong with you, I still want you to be my beloved. I can't believe that it's this good. But like we read in Jeremiah, he says what? He says, they were never faithful. Even though I was their husband, they weren't faithful. But what does it say? I'll establish a new covenant. I'm just going to keep on loving them. I'm going to establish a new covenant and it will not be like the old one. And he says, I will keep it. Not me, God. I won't keep it. I won't be able to keep it. That's the whole point. We're going to get there as we continue to go through this series. But does that not make it easy to drink that fourth cup? Because I know I'm not this good, but yet God has recklessly pursued me through my unfaithfulness to him. I can't believe that it's this good. Back to the ESV. Uh, verse 23 24, 25, 26 is said to be probably one of the most dense passages in all of the Bible. It's very, very dense, uh, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. We're going to just sort of try to look at it sensibly in light of what we've already learned. But verse 23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, again, we always focus on the sin part because sin is a, is, it's a reality. It's a big deal. We don't want to ignore it. But we pay very little attention to the fact that there's a glory that we are supposed to attain, but we have fallen short of it because we've exchanged that glory for ungodliness, which has then resulted in sin. There's always been more for us than what it is that we walk in. That's just a reality. God is a design. Ephesians says that we are his workmanship. He says that God has prepared for us a calling that we're supposed to be walking in. And yet, just like Israel, we fall short of that which we're supposed to be doing over and over again. Every single time. We always fall short of who we're created to be and we never do what we're supposed to do. And yet, the best news in the world is that God doesn't fall short. He keeps 
his end of the deal. We're going to make that very clear on Easter when Paul wraps up this argument, and he wraps it up in the most perfect way I could imagine. But the point of this passage, it's so much bigger than just you and I sinning and God forgiving us. We do sin, and God does forgive us. And then we sin again, and he forgives us. But we, we call this passage the culmination because this is the moment in which we find out that God truly has done what he promised that he would do. Through all the covenants, all of them that he made with Israel, including the one that he made with Abraham, which said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations, not just one nation, not just Israel. God will redeem many nations, not just Israel. And what Paul is saying here is that the covenant that God made with Abraham, he has now kept with both the Jews and the Gentiles through Jesus. So right after it says all have sinned and fallen short, it says and are justified, declared righteous through his grace. Now, we have several different times in this teaching uh, series leading up to this, we've talked about this, this concept of a court of law. And it's very crucial to this argument because it's how you understand justification properly. And how God is a judge, but he is a righteous judge. And again, this is where it culminates. And this does not work if you, if you don't have an understanding of what we talked about last week or what we talked about when we were in Romans 2, 1 through 16. But Because the reality is this. like If you plan, when, when God judges your, your secrets, right? If you plan on standing there and standing on account of your own merit and you plan on giving God a list of reasons why you should be let into heaven because of things that you've accomplished... If you do that, the Bible says that you're going to stand alone. And everyone who stands alone will stand condemned. So we don't stand, thank God we don't have to stand alone because of what Jesus has done for us. Paul says no one is righteous. So don't try to get there on account of your righteousness. But the gospel is that everyone who has faith in Jesus, everyone who understands I cannot save myself, I need Jesus to do it for me, Jesus stands with you. And like Paul says, we read it last week, their mouth will be silent, so you'll be silent, so that God himself can speak on your behalf and declare that you are righteous. The judge declares you right. He has weighed the scales, and because Jesus is the one who's standing on your scale, God declares you righteous. And get this. Okay, the moment that he does this, we have to hear this. The moment that he does that, your status changes from guilty to not guilty. Your status changes from guilty to a child of the living God. And if you know anything about a court of law, if you are tried and you are found innocent, that status now lives with you. That status stays with you. You now have all the rights of a person who is innocent. That's what it means to be justified. It means that God declares you to be in the right in his eyes. I I can't think of a better verse than 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, he, he being God, made him being Jesus. He made him who knew no sin. To be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God. Justification. But read this whole line in Romans 2.24. They're justified by the grace of God as a gift through the redemption. So all are evil. All have been knocked off course. All have fallen. 
God created us to be one way. He put us right where he wanted us and we fell. We got knocked off. But Jesus puts us back. It was a change of your status before God. Redeemed. Put back to who you were created to be. In fact, this is the way that ESV puts it. It says, God put Jesus forward as the propitiation for his sin, or for, for, by his blood. It's for our sins. But God put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into that word propitiation. It's a very deep word. It's loaded. It's debated. But the, it points back to the concept of, of sacrifice and ultimately like the concept of Yom Kippur. And the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. By definition, what it means is it means wrath is being appeased and goodwill is being gained. Okay? So the best way to understand it, in my view, is to understand Yom Kippur. And the concept is that on Yom Kippur, the goat is sacrificed on Yom Kippur and that blood covers the sins of the entire community for the entire year. The view of God um, throughout throughout history, in the view of all the gods, was always that, okay, we have to appease the gods by sacrifice. That's what it's always been. So this is how they would do it. But I want you to see what God does with this. Because Jesus, Abraham did not invent sacrifice. Okay? Moses did not invent sacrifice. The, the, this is what they did, this is what culture already did in order to appease the gods, is they would sacrifice. That was what they would do. But watch what God does with this. Okay? On Yom Kippur, there were two goats. The second goat was called Azazel, or the scapegoat. And what would happen was the high priest would put his hands on this goat and he would confess all the sins of the people into the goat from the entire town and he would send them away to a remote place that it says that he would carry their iniquities with them and they would never see him again. That's the second goat. The first goat was killed on behalf of their sins. But when you read about sacrifice in Jewish writing, you always see that, especially in that culture, the blood of an animal was always for the sake of life. It was more than just something that's not going to happen to them now. As in, like, it's not just now I'm not going to be punished for my sins. It's also what can happen to me now because of this. What's the life that I can now have? Remember the blood on the doorposts? Life. And throughout the Bible, we get this progression, right? In Abraham's day, you sacrifice to make an atonement for your sin. But a sacrifice for every sin leaves us with a lot of dead animals. It just does. A lot of people, a lot of sins. In Egypt, for Israel, the blood of the lamb caused death to pass over your entire house. One lamb whole house. Later, when the law was given to Moses on Yom Kippur, the blood of a single goat covered all of the sins for the entire community for the entire year. And here in Romans, we see that once and for all, the blood of Jesus covers all of the sins for all of the world for all time. And anyone who confesses Jesus receives that covering. But it's pretty easy, actually, if you read the New Testament to see that Jesus was actually all of it. Jesus was both goats on Yom Kippur. He was really the last real Yom Kippur. He was the sacrifice. He was the Azazel. He was the one who carried the weight of our sins away. He was the lamb who was slaughtered. He was all of it. But when you read Romans 1, and you begin to look at that list of sins, some of which you know that you've committed, 
some of which you can't even imagine committing. They're just so awful to you. Then you think about Jesus and he took all of that onto himself. You begin to realize this cost him a lot. I mean, murderers, slanderers, sexual immoral, the gossips, the idol worshipers, the foolish, the faithless, the heartless, the ruthless, the deceivers, the haters of God. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus died for the haters of God. The people who hated him, he died for. And part of the reason that Paul gives us such a, such a thorough list in Romans 1, it's not only to just show you that you're guilty. I think we all know that we're guilty. We're all on there one way or another. But he wants to show you that even though you weren't faithful, because we weren't, God still is. He is determined with complete resolve that he is going to keep his covenant. And as we prepare to close, let's look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness, God's covenant justice, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the second time that it says it was to show. This is why this happened. This is where Paul is going. It is to show us something. It's just like how in verse 21 he says, but now. It's not talking about a culmination of an argument. It's talking about a literal now. Now something has happened. Right now. This is such an important part. And to explain this, we need to go back to the Seder. There was actually a fifth cup during the Seder. It was known as the cup of Elijah. But unlike all of the other cups, this one was never drank from. This cup, they would set at the table with them. They would fill it like any other cup. But it would sit there, full of wine, because it was not for anyone at the table. It was for the guest who wasn't there yet. Then what would happen was someone from the family would get up from the table and they would go to the front door and they would open the front door. And they would leave it open and then they would return to the table. They would sit back down and they would continue the Seder. And this was their way of saying, maybe, just maybe, the Messiah will come today. And if he comes, we want to be ready. God, we've prepared a place. We've cleaned the house. We've set the table. The wine is poured. We're here. We're just waiting for you. Waiting for the Messiah to come. To finally make all that is wrong with the world right. To finally bring justice. To finally bring peace. But what Romans 3.26 tells us is that the Messiah has already come. He's here. Right here. And right now, we're not waiting for him to come one day. He's come and he's ushered in this new kingdom and he has redeemed us by his blood, putting us back in right standing with God and putting us back on the mission of God and the mission of redeeming and reconciling the rest of the world back to God. If the entire Bible were just about how man is sinful and God has saved us, it would still be good news because it's still awesome that God would do that and he did do that. But the Bible is about so much more than just how screwed up we are and how God saved us anyway. We weren't just saved. We were redeemed. We were put back. And if you're in this place today and you'd say to me, yeah, but I don't know. 
you just don't know what I've done. You don't understand what I've done. Let me tell you this. I know what I've done. And I know how hard it's been for me to fully grasp the fact that God will still use me. But the fact is that God still loves me. And he put me back. And he actually has sanctified me and delivered me and put me back to where I belong. Because just like that fourth cup says, we cannot wrap our minds around how good he is. I just just can't believe it's this good. But I'm telling you, the point of the letter so far in Romans, Romans 1, 2, 3, and ultimately 4, is that God, in fact, did do what he said he would do. And he will, in fact, continue to do that in your life, in your family, in our community. It doesn't matter what brought us to the place that we're in in this moment. What matters is that he is there with us. God made a promise. A promise that he would put back anyone who calls on his name. You know, we're going to learn next week that for Abraham, the only thing that Abraham had going for him was faith. And it was enough. Faith was enough. And if we have it, it will be enough for us too. If we can just believe that God is going to do what he said that he's going to do, then he will do it. You know, the writer of Hebrews, something stuck out to me. I've always, I've loved this passage. The writer of Hebrews calls the cross the culmination of the ages. I've always loved that, right? But I read a little further last night as I was studying this and I was thinking, okay, we'll land there, right? The culmination of the ages, it's gonna be awesome. Love that title. Right, it's the moment in history where the, everything we were waiting for actually kind of became a reality. But then it says this, and I, I never even noticed this before, but it says that Jesus will come again, which we believe in that. There's going to be a second coming. We should anticipate that, right? He says he will come again a second time, but then he says this, but the second time he will not come to deal with sin. Read it. He says, it says he already did that. That part has already been done. It's Hebrews 9.28. He says, but this time he's coming to rescue all the people who eagerly are waiting for him. Which means that as good as it is right now, the grace that we get to live in today, being part of the kingdom of heaven today, changing the world by doing the work of reconciling the world back to God today, that's all great, but the best is still yet to come. We were saved the cup of sanctification, we were saved, we're being saved, and we're going to be saved. We were delivered, we're being delivered, and we're going to be delivered. We were redeemed, we're being redeemed, and we'll be redeemed. I can't believe it's that good. Can you? <laughs>